Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today's episode is hosted by James. He talks to Jeff White, an investigative journalist, author, and host of the Lazarus Heist podcast. They talk about how to get people to care about their personal data, trying to explain complex tech in short news stories, and the Talk Talk data breach. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Hello and welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we talk to people behind the keyboard in cybersecurity to find out what motivates them, moves them, and dive into some of the threats that have shaped their career. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jeff White. Jeff's an author, speaker, investigative journalist, and podcast creator who's worked with the BBC, Audible, Penguin, Sky News, The Sunday Times, and many more. In a career spanning 20 years, he's covered everything from election hacking and money laundering to one of the topics we're going to dive into a bit more today around cybercrime economy and the trade in personal data. So welcome, Jeff, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you on. And I'd like to start by diving into how you actually got started, because I, in the introduction then we said you were an author, a speaker, investigative journalist, but I believe you actually started your career on our side of the fence in tech. Yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I started out working for an internet advertising agency slightly before the internet crash. Joined it during the internet boom and left it immediately after the internet crash. I wasn't particularly technical. I'm, I'm still not. I wouldn't claim in any way to be a techie, but it, it gave me a sort of healthy respect for how the technology worked. And I did, you know, I learned HTML. I built my first website by hand, typing out the HTML commands uh, long ago, back in the days before uh, things like Dreamweaver had appeared. So yeah, I, that's my sort of first start uh, in tech. Nothing to do with tech security at the time, but obviously that kind of grounding experience in technology really did help when I came to start covering tech as a journalist. And then what made you think about journalism as the next place to go after that, that experience? Well, I got sacked. I got laid off, um, as did a lot of people during the dot-com crash. And I'd always fancied being a journalist, but it always been on my mind to do. And because at that stage I was technically unemployed, um, I w was able to subscribe to a journalism course. And I think it cost £10 uh, to do the course because they gave a discount for unemployed people. So I did a journalism course um, for six months and then became a, initially a local newspaper reporter. I did the whole cats up trees and following fire engines around the local borough for a little while. And um, and then really went off from there. I just started working for larger and larger outlets, eventually working for people like Channel 4 News and the BBC. Uh, and then obviously the, the sort of tech side came back in because they, they're always wanting people to cover technology, I think, a lot of newsrooms. And not so much now, but when I was starting, starting out, there was a sort of kind of a fear and a sort of suspicion um, about technology stories, but also a misunderstanding. A lot of a lot of editors and news editors just didn't really understand technology, and they were looking for people who understood this stuff, weren't frightened by it, and, and could cover it and, and at least turn it into interesting output, interesting telly and radio. Yeah, I think a lot of people would still say that applies today because you know, from find yourself watching the news, looking at stories about technologies, and my wife tells me off for shouting at the news about things because uh, you know. The misrepresenting things that actually people in tech sort of see as very obvious, but then it's about communicating it to the general public. Yeah. So was it always a plan to get into tech or did it just follow that path that you were the one who was willing to take that step forward when other people weren't perhaps? Definitely. Yeah, definitely that. It, it, there was a natural gap in the newsrooms I was working in, in terms of people who understood technology. Because I understood technology, I gravitated towards stories around it anyway. I always found it interesting. And, you know, technology is, is it's the limits of human behavior. You know, technology is always pushing the limit of human behavior. And therefore, people are on the edge of human activity and human behavior. And that could be criminals, but it could also be, you know, people like pornographers, people like space explorers. The people at the fringes of society tend to be early adopters of new technology for good or ill. And so it's a fascinating place to be. You know, we kind of know how politics works. Recent experiences accepted. You know, we sort of know how sports work, but technology is always something new. There's always something strange and weird going on at the fringes of it. So I just naturally gravitated towards that. I should say when I started working mainly for Channel 4 News in the UK, a lot of the stories we did were sort of more lightweight type stories, computer games and gadgets. And it was the whole Apple product launch era where Steve Jobs would hold up the latest thing and people would, would applaud. And so that was what technology was seen at. There was, it wasn't seen as a serious news subject. But I started going to these tech security conferences and realising that there's a whole underground to this. There's a whole other world to this. This is where sort of nation state activity is going, where, where spying is going, it's where crime is going and where fraud is going. Um, so I suddenly saw this whole other side that, that, that technology could be a hard news story rather than just a sort of end of the program funny. One of the things that strikes me there is that the point you made around technology is always changing and moving and it's a really dynamic place to be. As a journalist, and particularly with your kind of investigative pieces, how do you actually know when to draw the line and, and call the story and report it? Or do you just keep on going and going and going? 
Well, it's a good question, yeah. And also which story to investigate, yeah. which is one of the key things as well when you start out. I mean, there are literally thousands of things right now I could be off investigating. And one of the compromises you have to make with yourself if you're going to get deep into a particular story is that it means you can't get deep into all of the other stories. So you have to, you know, being an investigative journalist and to a certain extent an author is as much about what you say no to as what you say yes to. And you're right, you, you know, there is, a, there is a certain point where you where you have to draw the line. For me, I really struggle with that point. One of the reasons I became an investigative journalist was, as a journalist, you're meant to sort of work on that day's story. And particularly as a TV news journalist and a generalist, you know, if it's Tuesday, it's the Olympics. If it's Wednesday, it's Boris Johnson's resignation. You know, Friday, you might be working on a showbiz story. Uh, you never really got to the bottom of anything. And I was really frustrated by that. There were stories that we left behind that... I thought weren't finished and I couldn't leave. <laughs> and this is the thing. I think most investigative journalists are the same. You just have a sort of slight obsessive behavior. And eventually, because you're obsessive, you uncover something that nobody else knew because that's almost inevitable. If you keep digging, you'll get something nobody else has. And at that point, you're an investigative journalist. Well done. So for anyone listening who's, who's interested in getting into it, that's kind of the way. Just keep digging and eventually you'll find something. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just seeing like a lot of crossovers with the teams that I work with in software development, actually making sure you're backing the right horse, making sure you know what thing to dig into and what things you, you're not going to build and prioritize. And mm. it, it's um, it's very difficult. And of course, then at the end of the day, you've got to take all these highly detailed subjects and either in the software industry, package them up in an easy to use interface, or in your case, package them up in a kind of a way you can communicate them with the general public. Mm. And that sort of brings me on to one of the things that, you know, something I'm very passionate about, like, is about breaking down silos and communicating uh, some of those things around information security in particular, because one of the things that people often say is that there's a, a huge skill shortage in cybersecurity. And actually what I always think of there's a massive shortage of is storytellers. And I think I really like the concept of things like your The Secret Life of Mobile Phone, the performance you put on to um, onto a stage to communicate with people what their phones are doing. So could you just tell our audience a little bit about how that came to be and, and what that was all about? Yeah, yeah. I did a project when I was at Channel 4 News called Data Baby which was um, it's a really interesting project. It was, it was quite ahead of its time, which when I say it sounds like a good thing, but it wasn't. It was ahead of its time to the point where I don't think most people understood what was going on. Uh, then Cambridge Analytica came along and suddenly everybody's like, oh, that's what you were talking about. So basically it was decided was to get to the bottom of personal data. What's happening with the personal data trade? Who's buying it? Who's selling it? Who's making money? And we set up this sort of fake personality called Rebecca Taylor, um, and she had, you know, she had a Facebook page and social media and all that kind of thing. And the idea was to sort of use this fake persona, this this fictional personality, to kind of get to the bottom of the personal data trade. Um, one thing I realised through that was that um, it's very difficult to to talk to audiences through broadcast news um, and broadcast generally about personal data, <laughs> because fundamentally it's 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 not their personal data. You know, if they're watching on TV and seeing people being hacked or showing all of these different, you know, personal data tricks that I was trying to show to them. Um, and personal data abuses, they could look and think, well, that's not, it's not my data. It's that person on telly who's, who's, who's the victim there. Why should I care? We got invited to a music festival called Latitude. Um, I said we got invited. I asked to, I asked to go along because I wanted to do some filming there for this Data Baby project. And I said, look, I'll give a talk about this project in your sort of talks tent, the spoken word tent. And so we went along and I was trying to think, well, how do I explain this to a live, live audience in front of me? And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll hack my own phone. So we use a package, I'm sure you're familiar with, James, called Wireshark, which is a network interception tool. It basically shows everything that comes on and off the phone. It stands between the phone and the internet. And it's an extraordinary tool, absolutely brilliant. And also has a mapping function, so you can map where the data went to in real time as well. So we just basically showed the festival audience Wireshark. And we said, look, here's my phone. Everything you see on screen is what's going off and on my phone. And everywhere it's going to, we're going to show you on a map and we're going to trace those companies down. We're going to show you where the data goes. And we got people in the audience saying, well, could you do that to my phone? I don't, you know, how about my phone? And I realized that's how you get through to people. You, you can't do it in a mass audience broadcast way. You have to take an audience of people, a live audience, and you have to hack their phones with their permission. And you have to show them using things like Wireshark in real time what's happening to their data. And suddenly they care. That's how you get them. And so that's how the secret life of your mobile phone came about. It was a sort of cabaret data. Snurf, slur, slurping show, um, which did really well. We did a lot, a lot of different audiences. We took it to the Edinburgh Festival, uh, Fringe Festival, and um, it sold out at the Edinburgh Fringe. So I was quite happy with that. Um, it's just a way of getting it across to audiences. Absolutely. And these are the kind of things, if you ever go to like the DEF CON security conference, you see they have the wall of sheet where they're doing very similar things, sniffing packets off the network, displaying things that have been transmitted in plain text. So it's really great to take that to a, a much broader audience and actually get people over that idea that 
hackers are some shadowy figures and it's all sophisticated and it's nothing to do with them, that actually even things that they think maybe are inconsequential, inconsequential pieces of personal data that are going out there actually can be used very effectively to, to trick them, which we'll come on to later, actually, with, with some of your talk, talk research. So when you, when you dove into that initial kind of stage presentation and you were sort of socially engineering effectively your way into a music festival by the sound of it, did you expect it to go down so well and then be taken kind of on tour a little bit? Um, no, I just thought it was a cool idea. I thought it, looked, I thought it was really cool. I thought the idea was just really, really good fun. I was really lucky to work with a guy called Glenn Wilkinson, who's a tech security researcher, um, pen tester, um, who's absolutely brilliant. And, and it was his software, the Snoopy software, which he developed with a colleague of his at SensePost that, that we use. That's what we're partly showing off as well with Snoopy. And he was absolutely brilliant. We worked together. I really enjoyed it. It just got us into some fun places. We did, we did um, Lush, the makeup people, makeup and cosmetics people, Lush, have a yearly conference, annual general conference. And it's really cool. They should take over a huge venue. And one of their themes was, was personal data and, and you know, privacy. So they invited us along to do this demo. So we, you know, we did this weird Secret Life of Your Mobile Phone hacking demo for, for a whole bunch of cosmetics experts. It was really strange. And it got us into some really cool places. What was really great was the Edinburgh Festival. Uh, it cost, I think I added it up, it cost them like £5,000 to take the show for a week to Edinburgh Festival, including accommodation and the venue and so on. And I said to Glenn, look, this is a bet. We are betting £5,000 that enough people will be interested to come along and we'll make our money back. Um, and sure enough, we sold out. We sold every seat in the house almost every night, not quite every night. but um, And so at the end of it, it was great because I could sort of show the stats to people and say, look, if you think people aren't interested in this, you're wrong. We, you know, we have an audience. They are going to come along. I don't think we quite made back the full five grand, but we, we got pretty close. And that was a really gratifying moment. It's like, well, put your money where your mouth is. If you think people are interested in this, take it to the Edinburgh Festival, compete with 3,000 other acts and see how it goes. So we're really pleased with that. No, that's great. I think it's just wonderful to see that public appetite for this kind of information that's out there and cutting through that that view of where your mobile phone is no longer just this magic box that does things and pops up adverts that happen to seemingly be of interest of something you were looking at previously to actually there's this constant flow of information that's being traded around you. So that that's um, really interesting to see. And that's one of the things that um, leads us on to some of your other projects. So I think your new book that's out, The Lazarus Heist, which follows on from the excellent podcast series of the same name, is another great example of taking, I'm going to do air quotes here for the people just listening, but kind of that classic hacking story where people might be initially disinterested and say, oh, nation states, some sort of hacking. I don't understand this, but it didn't impact me to actually something that's more interesting to a non-technical audience and weaving it in in sort of a Le Carre-esque style narrative that is that thriller story around people thinking about the geopolitics of it all and North Korea and how technology can be exploited. So do you want to talk a little bit about how that came to be and how you started researching the, the podcast and then turned it into a book? Yeah, yeah. Well, I published a book, um, having done about 10 years of coverage of cybersecurity, I published a book a couple of years ago called Crime.com, um, which is sort of the history, basically the modern history of, 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 of computer hacking right up to what was then the present day, which is 20, 2019, I think it was. And in that book, one of the chapters was about uh, the hacking of Bangladesh Bank, which obviously in cybersecurity circles is sort of legendary. But what was amazing about that story, and the reason I loved writing the chapter was it, it broke down almost like a Hollywood movie. It was like a bunch of hackers had watched a Hollywood movie and thought, we could do that, but we'll do it with computers. And all of the sort of little twists and turns you get in a heist movie, the sort of classic cliches of heist movies are in there in the story. You know, there's always a bit where the plot goes wrong and the hackers almost get caught. And that happens, you know, there's almost a point where the hackers get 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 caught inside Bangladesh Bank. There's always the, the issue where they think they've got the money and they, like the Italian job, you know, when they drive over the mountains, they think they've got the gold and then they take a wrong turn and it all goes wrong. Again, that same thing happens. It was it was weirdly very, very similar to a heist movie. So it's a great chapter to write. I took it to the BBC World Service. Because it's involving so many different countries, Bangladesh, New York, the Philippines, the US, I should say. Uh, you know, Sri Lanka, Japan, North North Korea, obviously, the, the BBC really liked it, World Service really liked it. And they paired me up with a brilliant journalist called Jean Lee, who was the AP bureau chief in Pyongyang, so actually inside North Korea, for, <clears throat> I think, six years. Um, mine of information, absolutely fascinating journalist to work with. And so the two of us put the podcast uh, together, and it tells not just the story of Bangladesh Bank, it also tells the story of Sony, Pictures Entertainment, and the hack there, the WannaCry cyber attack the ransomware attack from 2017. And also, of course, along the way, obviously massive insights, thanks to Gene, into uh, into North Korea and how that society works. Um, 
but uh, you know, I'm really flattered by, by the reference to John Le Carre. That's uh, if, if if that's in your mind, then that's a, that's a really good thing. Because when it came to writing the book, what I was trying to do was take all of the pace and adrenaline of the podcast, and then ideally amp it up and add all of the new stuff. Because the podcast stopped, the narrative stopped in 2017, and that's what five years ago. So I wanted to throw in all of the rest of the, ne- the, the next five years to sort of say, look, here's how it goes after that. Uh, it's good fun. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to start to weave those threads because people will often see a breach in the news and maybe hear the name of a threat actor. And, you know, some cybersecurity vendors now personify threat actors with cartoons or names or whatever it is that they do. But that doesn't resonate with people. They don't see that this is part of an ongoing, consistent campaign. This is a, a threat actor group moving yeah. taking new objectives, reacting to political situations, reacting to yeah. sanctions, all these kind of things that go on. And I think that's where the, the it reminds me of the Le Carre stuff because it's the the sort of thriller aspect and the behind the scenes and the shadowy figures mm-hmm. that are then then brought to life. So that was really, really uh, interesting to to listen to and start to dig into the book. So when did your journey into the Lazarus Group begin and did you did you foresee it was going to be such a big project? No, not at all. I don't think anybody did. Um, <laughs> anybody who's investigated or looked into Lazarus Group, you know, in the early stages, you, you never quite think where it's going to go go to. I mean, the first time really I came across them was was in the Sony Pictures Entertainment hack. I was dimly aware that there had been cyber attacks the year before. This was 2013, um, the so-called Dark Soul attacks, which hit South Korea's capital, Seoul, obviously, and, and, and other businesses in the country. Was aware of that sort of stuff happening, and then Sony happened. Barack Obama very publicly blamed North Korea for that attack. I was skeptical. I'll hold my hands up. I was very skeptical at the time as to North Korea's involvement. But then over the subsequent years, just more and more and more has come out about this. And this is the difficulty with cybersecurity and covering cybercrime. And, and the reason it works a lot better as a podcast, an investigation, or a book, uh, and or a book, is that there's the bang. There's the immediate bang of the hack. You know, something happens. Oh my God, something's been hacked. Things have been stolen. Ah, that usually hits the news. It's only in the months, sometimes years afterwards, that the investigation happens and you work out what actually happened and you can fit those dots together. And the US put out an indictment in 2018. So that was four years after the Sony hack. It was it was two years after the Bangladesh Bank hack. It was a year after WannaCry, so a long time after these things had happened. And that criminal complaint by the US government against a North Korean individual, a guy called Pak Jin Hyok, mapped out in excoriating detail exactly what had happened, uh, according to the US government, in those hacks. So suddenly two years later, you look back at the Sony incident with completely fresh eyes. Uh, and so that's one of the weird things about investigating cybercrime is it, it just works on these much longer timelines. Absolutely. And it's that kind of thing that you lose in the, the 24-hour news cycle, the, the, you know, the flash, this is what's happening now, because yeah. often with cyber, the, the really interesting things are the things that people didn't get caught for at the time. But yeah. then you find out afterwards how far their, their reach extended into yeah. systems, into data, because Ultimately, most of the time, especially as a nation state actor, you're not trying to prove a point, although sometimes that is the case. Most of the time you're trying to remain undetected and mm. harvest the information that you can then use to your advantage mm. in other situations. So uh, it's and really also, interesting you mentioned that. Explaining, explaining technological concepts is quite difficult. You know, someone like Channel 4 News, you'd have maybe three and a half minutes to not only explain what ransomware was and what Bitcoin is, but also the fact that there'd been a ransomware attack and who was hit and how they were hit and who you think's behind it. It's impossible. In hindsight, I realised a lot of what I was asked to do just wasn't really possible in a way that the, that the listener and the viewer could, could understand. Um, I did a piece for Sky News recently about NFTs and did my best, but it's not a two and a half minute news piece is not enough time to explain it. And I understand the, chat, the, the reply from editors, which is, well, then we won't put it on telly because it's just too complicated. If, if it's too complicated to explain in two and a half minutes, we just shouldn't be doing it. My sort of solution to that is to do longer term, deeper investigative stuff because I want to be able to take four or five minutes to explain a concept to people. Uh, in the new series of the podcast, there is going to be a season two, by the way. Um, we're going to be looking at cryptocurrency theft. Now, obviously, what we have to do as part of that is explain how crypto works to people, but not just the basics, but the, the new innovations, smart contracts and DeFi and things like that. It takes time. You can't do that in a few minutes. And if you try and do it in a few minutes, you, 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 you miss your window completely. People have just tuned out and decided that technology is not for them. So the only way for me to do technology is, is in-depth investigative stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, those same people who would tune out to it, if you told them that the Bank of England had had several million pounds stolen from it, people would very much be able to understand that. But when you say a, an NFT has been stolen or, you know, some cryptocurrency has been stolen, it seems like, like you know, someone's stolen your monopoly money. So what, what does this matter? Yeah. And actually, yeah. the, you know, there are real world economic consequences to these things and money moving between countries. Yeah. 
Are there any, uh, you know, without giving away any of the the interesting plot twists, are there any <laughs> stories that particularly stood out for you or during that investigation that are uh, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the two that really interested me, I mean, there's all the cryptocurrency stuff, which is fascinating. You're looking at, by a conservative estimate, $2 billion having been stolen, allegedly by the Lazarus Group, North Korea's government hackers. And $2 billion is an underestimate. People think, oh, well, crypto's gone down. It's probably only worth a billion now. No, no, no. It, $2 billion was an underestimate. It was way, way, way above that. And the second thing that really stands out beyond the cryptocurrency stuff is the story we covered about a particular hack on a bank in India called Cosmos. Uh, and then the second hack the year after on a bank in Malta called Bank of Valletta. What's amazing about those two, two bank hacks is it's not just the hackers who are doing them. They work with a really interesting group of organised criminals. And not just organised cyber criminals, but just organised street level criminals. The kind of work they're doing increasingly is going beyond computer hacking and is merging into very traditional forms of crime. You're talking about money muling, you're talking about moving cash across borders, you're talking about laundering money through bank accounts. This is what criminals have been doing for decades, centuries perhaps even. And so suddenly the cyber criminals are starting to interface and liaise with those on the ground street criminals. That's super fascinating. And spoiler alert, they end up working with an Instagram influencer who goes by the name Hush Puppy, who's living in the Versace Hotel in Dubai. And there's an amazing story about how the guy gets arrested. I won't spoil it all, but that's really worth tuning in for. That's an incredible story. Well, nice to know we can blame some influencers for something. That's uh, <laughs> that's really interesting. Looking forward to seeing more as that story comes out. Um, so that actually moves us quite nicely into one of your other long-running threads, you know, this this idea that you start looking at something from an investigative journalist point of view and more and more information keeps coming out, which is the talk talk breach. So anyone who Googles Jeff White, one of the things, many things that come up, but talk talk is kind of a, a recurring theme with you. So for those people who don't know that talk talk uh, is a UK internet service provider, they provide broadband services. I think they have been, or they are the largest in the UK. And I think most people in the UK are probably familiar with the fact that there was a breach in 2015, which resulted in around 157,000 customers, personal data, being stolen by some teenagers. I followed on a, a very hard lesson from the CEO in how to not handle a breach and then resulted in a record-breaking fine from the Information Commissioner's office. Is, is that your starting to talk talk, that, that breach in 2015? Because I know you've uncovered a lot more around talk talk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, like most people heard about the breach, was working at Channel 4 News that day, was dispatched to go and cover the story, interviewed a woman who had had an issue with talk talk and in the sort of way that TV news does, I sort of brushed over the details of it. Um, and so I was like, well, here's a, here's a talk talk hacking victim, I think I described her as. And what had happened was a bunch of teenager, teenagers basically had found some holes, security holes in talk talk systems, broken in through those holes and stolen some credit card data. Uh, the tragedy for talk talk was they didn't really know at the time how much data had gone missing. So they had to go on the news and say, well, it's, it's possibly everybody's data, which was 4.2 million people, you know, one in 15 of the UK population. Um, so, so I started investigating this, looking into this, did a story on the day, interviewed this talk talk hacking victim, a woman called Tamsin Collison, and basically screwed it up. I told, I, I said in the script that Tamsin had been reimbursed by talk talk or been offered compensation, I think, 50 pounds compensation. And I phoned Tamsin up afterwards and said, oh, did you see the piece go out? Are you happy? And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm really unhappy because you said I got compensation. And actually she was offered compensation, but did not take it from talk talk. That's very important for her. She was, she was very, you know, and, and rightly so. She was very keen to sort of say, look, I didn't take their money and you got that wrong. So I felt very guilty. So, well, let's meet up for a coffee and I'll, I'll try and see if I can do something more on the story and, and get it right this time. And as she described the story and what had happened to her, not working on an on, on, on the day story with all the stress that, that that contains, I suddenly started listening much closer and thought, hang on, this is nothing to do with this bunch of teenagers who broke in, found some security holes and made off with some credit card data. This is something else. And it turned out that TalkTalk had a massive data leak in India. It had outsourced its call centre operations to a company called Wipro in India. And some staff members at Wipro in Calcutta had taken TalkTalk customers' data and sold it on the black market in India. Uh, but what was remarkable was that they didn't really have that much, the, 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 the sort of data thieves who, who, who acquired this data. They had TalkTalk customers' name, their phone number, their account number, and that was kind of it, you know, not much. But they turned this into a remarkable cottage industry. They phoned up TalkTalk Talk customers, pretended to be from TalkTalk, Talk, and that was the key thing. In order to pretend to be from TalkTalk, Talk, all they needed was the TalkTalk Talk account number. 
Because when they phone people up and said, oh, I'm calling from Talk Talk, if the person at the other end of the phone says, oh, are you? Prove it. They would say, well, here's your account number. No one else other than Talk Talk could know your account number. So obviously I'm, I'm legit. I'm from Talk Talk. So from then on, these victims, including women like Tamsin, uh, people like Tamsin, were, were, were caught out by this and thought they were talking with Talk Talk. They were then tricked into installing TeamViewer, which is a remote access software. Legitimate piece of software, but um, they were unknowingly installing it, not knowing, not realizing what TeamViewer allowed the hackers to do, which was remote into their computers. Uh, they were then able to um, get them to log into their online banking, and effectively the hackers were able to log into their the, the victims' online bank accounts. And then they had a very complex but ultimately very successful way of tricking the victims into transferring money to them. And we're talking tens of thousands of pounds. I mean, some of the victims of Talk Talk, older people as well had their life savings taken away from them, tens of thousands of pounds that they never got back. This case is still going through the courts in the UK. Talk Talk has still not accepted liability for this, is still fighting this. Because Talk Talk, perhaps reasonably, say, well, the, the data leak was at Wipro in Calcutta. We, you know, that's not us. Don't sue us for that. Um, so there's a whole court case. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. But um, through this, we managed to actually get hold of the people who are carrying out the scam, which is quite a turn of events. Excellent. So this is a really interesting example of how there's an initial breach that hit the headlines that everyone remembers for Talk Talk, but actually that just led you down the investigative path of finding something else, which was yeah, what I would describe as much more traditional crime of stealing data out of call centers, social engineering, calling people up. And for anyone in the UK who has Talk Talk, if you've ever tried to install TeamViewer to get you know access to your system, you'll find that there's a reason this is now blocked by the ISP by default, um, <laughs> so, which is one of, one of the ongoing consequences. Yes. Uh, which I discovered whilst trying to fix a relative's laptop with, with TeamViewer. It makes a lot of sense they've done that because that became the, the MO. I mean, these hackers did it again and again and again. I mean, interestingly, when I, when I, when I interviewed Tamsin the second time, I was obviously quite interested in this whole scam because I thought, well, maybe there's a way of tra tracing these guys. They must have left some forensic clue. I thought, well, maybe the TeamViewer session is still open on her laptop. I thought about that, but no, she'd wiped the laptop, got rid of that. But basically, the only thing Tamsin had from from the incident that she'd had and from the from the fraud she'd been exposed to was a phone number, an Indian mobile number. So I phoned it up from the UK and the person who answered said, hello, talk, talk speaking. And I was like, oh, that sounds odd. I then gave the Indian mobile number to someone, to a colleague who was working in India. And I said to him, could you phone this number up from an Indian mobile and just see who answers? And sure enough, they came back and said, oh, um, yeah, the person answered the phone. He called himself uh, Sahil Hussain. And I was like, oh, so not talk, talk then. No. So I was like, okay, that is deeply suspicious. So I went to Facebook and pre-Cambridge Analytica, this trick worked. You could go to Facebook, you could type in a mobile number. And even if the person hadn't made their mobile number publicly available on their Facebook profile, if they linked their mobile to their Facebook by, for example, installing the app, the, then Facebook would, when you entered their number in, show their profile. So I typed in the, the number and sure enough, Shaweeb Khan's uh, uh, profile comes up and I clicked on it. It's, oh my God, this is the guy I just called in India. And absolutely astonishing. And he had an accomplice called Sahail Hussain, who was also in on the scam. And so we, we asked them for their side of things and said, look, we've accumulated this evidence. We think you're behind this massive fraud. Their Facebook profiles went offline and haven't come back. And um, and we put their faces on telly. And it was the most satisfying moment I think I've ever had in my journalistic career. Like, no, these are the guys. It's not faceless cybercrime. It's not just some shadowy group. It's these guys. <laughs> you know, we are going to put their pictures on the telly. And I'm really glad we did that. I seem to recall from your piece on Channel 4 News at the time that these guys were quite fans of posting themselves um, in exotic <laughs> locations and taking selfies to really incriminate themselves. Oh, yeah. There was a great picture of Sahel Hussain um, where he was, he obviously got on holiday and he was in a swimming pool and he's wearing the tiniest pair of trunks, a really tiny pair of trunks. And the lawyer, as you can imagine, the, the, the Channel 4 News lawyer, Rachel Welsh, um, had to look at this a great deal and did a lot of work on it. And at the end, we were in the edit suite and Rachel said, I've got one more question. One more question. I said, well, what is it? We've been through everything. What is it? And she went, is he wearing trunks in that picture? Can we zoom in? So we had to zoom in on the photograph to verify that we weren't about to put a naked man on television. Um, that became the, the final hurdle we had to cross. But uh, happy to say he was wearing trunks and we did put his picture online. Excellent due diligence by uh, you and the legal team there. The, um, these two obviously were involved in the scam. You've caught them out. They were you know, calling up people, moving money around. Were they the only two that you believe were involved in the scam or was it a much wider network? 
Oh no, it was huge. This was absolutely huge. And what was really interesting was it was the the the, the operation was was um, separated into two chunks, two different uh, groups of people working in two different places. Um, there was a, a call center in central India in a place called Indore, and they recruited workers to work in that call center, claiming that this was a talk talk call center. Now, whether the recruits who worked there really believed that or just pretended to believe that, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is hundreds of people were recruited to work in this call center, and it was their job to take the talk talk customers' numbers, phone numbers, phone them up, and say, Hello, Mrs. Mr. or Mrs. Such and such. I'm calling from Talk Talk, convince them they were Talk Talk, and then install the Team Viewer remote viewing app on, on, the, on that person's machine. And that was where their job stopped. As soon as they got remote access, Team Viewer installed, they would transfer the call to another office, which was the office in which Sahel Hussein and Shaweeb Khan, the two guys that I exposed, they worked in that office. And they were the ones who then tricked the victim into accessing their bank account and tricked them into transferring the money. And that's really interesting because A, this is this is a, a big operation in India. It's dozens of people. We even found recruitment ads where they were trying to recruit people for this dodgy call center. But what it also does is it, it separates out the criminality. Because if you think about it, for the guys, and it was generally guys, working in the call center in indoor, installing TeamViewer, calling people up, they could just about convince themselves that they were carrying out a legitimate exercise because as far as they're concerned, all they're doing is talk, calling up customers, getting them to install TeamViewer. There's nothing really criminal about that. It's only once it installed TeamViewer that the call gets transferred to the other office where the criminality happens. And that's a much smaller group of people. So it gave them, the people working in the call center, palpable deniability. These hundreds of people working for the call center never really got to see the scale of the full crime. And it was only after the piece went out and we showed Shaweeb Khan and Sahel Hussein's pictures that I got contacted by, I think at the end, three people who'd all worked in this call center who suddenly put all the pieces together and realized they weren't working for TalkTalk Talk and they weren't helping customers. They were facilitating this massive fraud and they felt very, very bad about it, those individuals. That's fascinating that it's it's a whole industry. And this is often the, the thing people don't get around cybercrime, data theft, all these kind of things. It's, it's very well organized, very well orchestrated. And when we look at you know the ransomware campaigns out there that, oh, they've, they've got a ransom, great. Well, no, that's actually a funding round for investment in more technology and, and more staff. And these these companies are exactly the same, that they'll be able to scale up their operations based on the amount of data that they're able to glean. The other aspect of this, which was interesting, was looking at the economics of it. They'd have to make quite a lot of phone calls to get successfully through to a talk talk victim. And then, of course, not all those victims were you know, fooled into paying the money. So looking at the economics of it, I did have questions around how they could be making in any way enough money to make this wash its face as a, as a business, you know, even an underworld business. But the people working in the call centre told me that they worked different shifts. And so there was a shift they were on, which would have been daytime in the US, but there were also shifts which would have been daytime in, sorry, in the UK. There were also shifts which would have been daytime in the US. And some of the people working in the call centre told me that they, they reckoned there was other data sets they were working with. So they, they might have hacked TalkTalk Talk in the UK, but they might also have hacked or got data from TalkTalk Talk in the UK. They might also have got data from a healthcare provider in the US. They might have got data from an insurer in Taiwan. Wherever they can get data and make this little scam run, they can potentially get victims. So the call centre was, was a truly international 24-hour-a-day operation. And that original TalkTalk Talk breach that brought your attention to this, was the data from that, you know, the data that these teenagers saw, I think allegedly it was through a, a PHP page that was misconfigured and some Talk, talk subsidiary business had just left it there, connected up to backend systems and databases and forgotten about it, which is how the teenagers got in. Did that data set ever make it out to the scammers and, and cause more issues? Very murky that. I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I know for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the, the, the youngsters who did the talk talk breach, it was a fairly classic case of kids egging each other on. You know, one kid goes a bit further and another kid goes a bit further than that. There was a, a bit of that going on. I think the person who ended up trying to pull out the most data made a huge amount of noise. And, and Talk Talk, I think at one point, thought they were under DDoS attack, denial of service attack, because there was so much traffic flooding onto their site. And what they then realised was, oh, hang on, that traffic flooding to our site is all of these, as you say, PHP requests. <laughs> ah, that's bad. So one of the kids was very, very noisy, pulled out loads of data. And I think the rest of them at that point were just like, whoa, hang on, we're all in trouble now. There was messages going around on Twitter uh, between these kids saying, what the hell have you done? You know, we're all in trouble. So a lot of them, I just think, deleted all the data 
um, Derek's boot and nuke got used a lot during that time. And so I think the data got deleted. I don't think it ended up um, uh, uh, being sold or being traded. There was another story I heard about um, another data breach, uh, also involving talk, talk, but I haven't substantiated this. And that data apparently did hit the dark web. So it's difficult to work out which bits of data come from which breach. Um, but in terms, terms, just to separate this out, that the Indian data breach was just a classic data center, corrupt member of staff or members. The Talk Talk 2015 hack by these young kids was, as you say, a, a website breach. Um, so that's that's the two sets of data that got stolen. Yeah, and it, that kind of um, call center or even the breach itself is a really good example of how even small pieces of information. So I often talk to people who run small businesses or charities, and the sort of view is, why would anyone hack me? I'm I'm only a small charity. But if you can get, like you say, some personal information that makes you seem legitimate, if you can call up and say, I'm calling from the bank, I know you direct debit this much a month to the RSPCA or some other charity, it gives you legitimacy. And I think that's what people miss out on in these, all these small data breaches all come together as far greater than the sum of their parts because they allow people to be yeah. manipulated and you can build trust. It's ironic that people don't understand that because that is the business model of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, every social media platform. What they're all doing is trying to aggregate as much data as possible because the, if those data points individually are completely useless. But if you aggregate them together, they're a hugely powerful insight tool for advertisers. You can find so many different ways to monetize aggregated data. The more of it you get, the more powerful each individual data point becomes. And so you know, I try and use use the, the the social media model to explain what hackers are doing to people because it's like, well, they're doing the same thing. That stealing your, I don't know, date of birth might not be very useful, but if you put that together with, you know, uh, people's preferred, you know, favorite pet, people's favorite football team, you start to get the security questions right. You can guess the passwords. You know, all every bit of data for a hacker is going to be useful because it'll fill in a bit of the jigsaw somewhere. Yeah, and sometimes it's not even manipulating the individual you've got the data on. It might be manipulating their own bank that you are hmm. the individual you've got the data on, if you can provide sufficient verification there. So with the talk talk one, that that didn't end with your investigation in the 2015 time period, because I believe you updated that earlier this year, that it's still ongoing and still evolving. Yes, there is, as I say, there is an ongoing court case um, uh, around talk talk, um, which pops up every now and again in my inbox, and, and we'll see what happens with that. But um. There was a bizarre update. I was reading, I'm researching money laundering now. It's my, my next sort of task to research. My next book is going to be about money laundering. And I was re reading a report and there was this bizarre story from Bahrain about a bunch of uh, money launderers in, in that country who were going to money transfer shops and, and transferring sort of the, the, the $9,000 level, you know, just below the kind of, you know, transaction monitoring uh, uh, limits, yep. uh, thresholds. Um, and it turns out this was connected to the TalkTalk Talk hack. So some of the TalkTalk Talk victims were tricked into transferring their money to accounts in Bahrain, who, who then transferred them back to account holders in India. And it made perfect sense because, you know, as, as, a, as a criminal, you want to try and muddy the waters, you muddy the waters uh, of the, the money trail. And so transferring it back straight to India might give the chance that it's recovered. Whereas if you transfer it to Bahrain, it's withdrawn in cash, it's deposited into a money transfer business, the money transfer business then sends it back to India. Well, now suddenly you've got two or three different entities that you're working with to try and trace the money. It makes it a lot harder. Uh, and it was chefs. It was overseas catering workers in Bahrain who are Indian, who had gone over there, you know, expat Indian guys, who obviously had some contacts back home and were tapped up to ask them to take part in the money laundering exercise. And I'm sure for a few extra extra dirhams, they were only too happy to do that. So yeah, it's a bizarre postscript. That there's, there's the money laundering aspect to uh, uh, to the talk talk story yeah and it's a great example of how that one-off data breach can have such a long shelf life in terms of that that you know personal data often doesn't change and it can be just continuously used yeah and then the scams like you say they started moving money around in different ways to avoid detection to cross different legal jurisdictions so these things are, are constantly evolving in terms of longevity of hacks i think the most remarkable one was the yahoo hack which god i think that was 23 13, something like that. Somebody figured out a way basically to break into Yahoo accounts and there was loads of spam going around. And it was all of a similar type. It would be sent to you, but CCing in three of your contacts who had Yahoo addresses, something like that. They, they had the, the email addresses. And, and eventually this, this spam campaign came to a halt and I think TalkTalk Talk got a handle on it. They also caught, well, certainly there was a criminal complaint against one of the guys who was meant to be behind it, a Russian guy. Um, but what was interesting was for, for, months afterwards, maybe even years, I was still getting spam 
that wasn't coming from the Yahoo account, because obviously they they sealed off the access. You couldn't get into those accounts and hack them anymore. But it was coming from similar email address configurations at different uh, providers. So if it was, I don't know, tom.smith at yahoo.com and it was CC'd in a whole bunch of my mates with Yahoo addresses, it would now come from tom.smith at gmail.com, but CCing in the same people you know, with, with Gmail addresses. So clearly, I mean, that, that data was just toxic. It just kept rolling out and rolling out because you see your mates' names and you think, oh, that's my four best mates. You know, they've obviously got new Gmail addresses after the Yahoo breach. Maybe I'll reply. Just astonishing. I mean, it's like toxic waste, these data breaches. It just doesn't go away. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see because the, the technical barrier often isn't very high with these. Once people have got the access to these data sets, mm-hmm. They're often just exploiting business logic. So your spam filter might pick up if a random email comes to you alone. But if it's got some of your contacts listed in there, then suddenly it's allowed through and it seems more legitimate. And then they do variations on these themes. And they're not writing zero-day exploits here. We're not seeing state-of-the-art things. They're just playing with the business logic that you've got in place and you're just assuming that you're being kept safe. So really fascinating to see how the technical barrier is quite low for some of these attacks and attackers. Exactly the same with the TalkTalk scam. They're just email address, name, account number, or phone number, and then they're away. Yeah, exactly. So do you have a, a sense of the number of people who've been impacted by this? Obviously, you mentioned Tamsin, who was great on your mm. news report and furious to see the photo of some person. I think she said he was half his age and swore in a description of him. Wasn't very happy to see him there in his Speedos in the pool, but yeah. how many other victims do you think there, there were out there or still are out there? It's a, it's a very good question. Um, I don't think we ever got a comprehensive figure on it, but... I mean, it's 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 got to be in the hundreds and possibly up into the thousands of people, uh, and and these thefts were again not millions, but you know it was it was they were usually in the thousands, sometimes up to ten, sometimes up to twenty thousand. So this is you know it's millions of pounds that's been taken off people. And the really really sad thing about this was, I think a lot of the calls that people received were on landlines during the day. So these this this call center operation in indoor in India. Um, would be calling people up. A lot of the m- numbers were landlines and they, they were obviously being called during the day. I don't know about you, I haven't had a landline for, I can't remember how long, more than 10 years. M- my mum still does and still uses it. So the demographic of the people who were hit, not really by design, but, but, but mainly by chance, tended to be older people. And of course, the tragedy of that is older people fall for these scams. So it was, it's partly the number of victims, you know, as I say, I, I'd estimate in the hundreds, it may be up into the thousands. Um, it also had their money taken off them at a time in their life when they weren't able to earn more to replace it. If you and I get ripped off, it's bad, but at least we can still keep working and try and fill the hole. These guys, they didn't have that option. It was brutal. It was really, really brutal to to, to hear these stories. Um, uh, and as I say, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with the with the court, court action on that. And do you think the, the company handled it the right way? Could they have done more to prevent their customers becoming victims of these scams? Um, would you, yeah, this is the really interesting bit. So Talk Talk knew about the data leak in India fairly early on. And TalkTalk claimed that they tried to reach out to customers and warn them about this. Um, The issue I think TalkTalk had was, I suspect they didn't want to say, look, we've lost a whole bunch of data. (laughs) We're not sure how much, but some of you are going to be getting dodgy calls. Because obviously that looks bad for the customers who aren't affected. They they don't want to think TalkTalk's a leaky ship. So I suspect TalkTalk's communications with these customers were a little less direct than they might have been. You didn't you didn't get a big letter with warning written on it. Um, so a lot of customers probably just threw these things in the bin. It's another security warning, you know. Um, so so already Talk Talk was sort of struggling to get the word out to customers. Then there was the October 2015 hack where this bunch of teenagers broke in, stole a bunch of credit card data, and nicked off with it. Suddenly Talk Talk's in the news again, and there's a whole bunch of talk about Talk Talk being hacked. We think this Indian operation, the, the Indian scam call center, then went into overdrive and was calling people up uh, saying, oh, you know, this talk talk breach, you know, we, we can help you with this. So in a way, talk talk's issue with it and talk talk's wish and drive to bring public attention to the 2015 hack may have actually assisted the criminals in India to commit more crime. The other tragic thing is when talk talk went public about the hack in October 2015, as I say, they, they were claiming at that point that it, it it could affect all 4.2 million of their customers. In fact, the amount of credit cards that were stolen from TalkTalk Talk was, I think, 156,000 from memory. Um, that's just kind of it's just bad. Obviously, it's not great, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to some other hacks and probably wouldn't even have got onto the news. So, I mean, the big lesson for this for corporates is, you know, 
the better monitoring you have in place and the quicker you can get a handle on how bad the hack is, the more you can avoid the media spotlight. Because if you, you know, if all you're doing is estimating, oh, it could be all of our customers, then that sounds like a very, very big story when actually it might not be. Yeah, I've actually talked to um, PR training companies who use it as an exact, ex excellent example of how not to handle a breach, you know, show that you don't have a handle on the situation, inflate the figures, cause panic, and then not be able to clarify those answers as you, as you move forward and, and have a clear plan. Within the kind of the talk to a corporation, obviously, they were aware that these things were happening. There was, you know, murmurings for a while. They claimed they tried to do things to help customers. Did, did you get approached by any whistleblowers? Were there people trying to call your attention to this from the inside of these operations? Obviously, you mentioned some people in the call center retrospectively mm. realized they were involved, but were any people at the time, you know, trying to shout out to you about this? Um, yes, yeah, so there's a call center operatives who, who got in touch. Uh, there were also a couple of other people from inside Talk Talk um, or, or former former Talk Talk people um, who I spoke to for research on this, um, who were very useful in sort of standing things up. Um, but I have to say, I don't generally get approached by whistleblowers. <laughs> it's quite unusual for me. And I, I'm innately suspicious of whistleblowers yeah. because they usually have some kind of agenda. Um, so I'm quite careful with whistleblowers. I, I treat the stuff that they give me and, and the, the information they hand over, I think has to be treated with, with, with kid gloves because you've got to ask yourself some serious questions about, are you doing somebody else's bidding when you work with a whistleblower? As I say, luckily it doesn't happen to me very often, but in this case, I was, I was happy having talked to these whistleblowers that, you know, they weren't exactly in love with talk talk, but they, you know, they, they didn't have a significant axe to grind and that, that reporting it was a fair, a fair thing to do. Yeah. And on a personal note, you know, as you've gone through your career here, looking at all these different breaches, all these different incidents, what, what do you think are the, your big takeaways from investigating these stories? What have you learned personally? Look, on a personal level, it, it's quite useful to be able to see how other people get caught out because I can try and, you know, raise my own safety level and also raise the level of the public safety, but also my friends and family and so on. Um, I get quite a lot of calls and emails from family members asking about, is this spam? And the answer is usually yes. Um, so that's, uh, that's been helpful. Um, I think the biggest lesson is still that um, phishing messages, uh, which obviously phishing email is still part of it, but increasingly social media and increasingly things like LinkedIn are just still, they're still the weapon of choice for computer hackers. Um, I got asked at a conference the other day, you know, aren't there tools that we can use to prevent these phishing messages and prevent the malicious attachments and so on? Um, and the answer is, yes, there are you know, scads of them. Um, search the internet and there's plenty of people willing to, wanting to take your money on that. The, the, the depressing thing is if they were working, hackers wouldn't be sending spam emails anymore. They wouldn't be sending phishing emails uh, messages through social media anymore. They are, and and clearly they think that it works, um, and it does work for them. So that's the thing. It, it comes back to this, this lesson at the very heart of it, which is no matter how good the techies get, no matter how good the tech security is, no matter how wise your company is, no matter how effective government controls are, intelligence agencies, the lot, ISPs, in the end, it's you. It's you and your inbox, you and your phone, you and your Facebook account. Uh, and that's we will never get away from that. Um, we can do all we like, but fundamentally, if we don't prepare people for this and give them a bit of wisdom and, and, and give them some sort of tools to defend themselves, we'd be, you know, we're absolutely lying to ourselves. I, th I sort of compare it to kind of living in the sort of state of nature. You know, um, if you if you put people in the state of nature, then don't give them at least a spear to fend off the worst of it. Then you, you're kind of letting your population down. I think it's the same, you know, it'd be lovely if there were tech security companies and governments who could just sort all this out for us. It'll never happen, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And what do you think? So you mentioned earlier that the kind of the older generation were being called up because they were during the day. They were more likely to fall victim to these scams, which you know we see time and time again. What about the younger generation? Because what I'm seeing the trend of is they're more connected than ever. They're sharing more information than ever, from selfies to locations to TikTok videos, all kinds of information is out there. Do you think they're savvy to these threats, or do you think they're just as naive? And we're going to see a whole new wave coming through of the latest. TikTok threat? Yeah, it's a good question. And what I'd love to do, rather than giving what I'm about to do, which is a sort of a anecdotal kind of view, is I'd love to have a look at the data actually on, you know, victims of crime, the British Crime Survey and so on, and look at the demographics behind victims of cybercrime. It's interesting. You'd have to take that quite carefully, though, because my suspicion would be that the 
older victims of cybercrime are probably hit for more money because they have more money and are more likely to report it. Yeah. So I think you'd have to look at some kind of proactive crime survey that goes out and questions people of all ages and see. I'd be fascinated. Glad you brought that up, actually. It's something that's figures I should should go and have a look at. But look, I mean, anecdotally, in terms of younger people, I do think it's a mixed picture. I know what you mean. I hear that a lot from people of, oh, you know, they're so liberal with their data. You hear young people saying, oh, well, I've probably already been hacked. What does it matter, et cetera? Yeah. However, there's also this completely opposite counter strain where a lot of the young people I speak to and talk to me at events and we, we do these mobile phone shows and stuff are really switched on and really want to know and take it really, really seriously and can understand the technology behind it in a way that older people who aren't digital natives don't. The other thing that you know younger people do sometimes is just delete the accounts. They'll say, well, I'm, I'm going to run this Facebook account till I'm 18 and all of my dodgy drinking and sexual episodes are going to be reported here. But when I get to 18, I'm searching for a job. I'll just delete this account and set up a new one, and, and you know. So there's aspects of that that you hear about. You think, well, maybe they're they're not they're not as gung ho as you as you might think they are. But look, as I say, what I've given there is an anecdotal reflection. I think it's a good point. I need to go away and look at the figures and actually see what see what it is. There must be some good ones somewhere. Yeah, maybe they're kind of unconsciously doing threat modeling there. They're realizing that they're sharing a lot of data, but it doesn't matter. They don't have any money. They're going to delete the account. It's a it's a temporary persona online that then disappears. So that's a yeah. really interesting take on it. So last couple of questions as we, as we round off this. Uh, first one comes from our previous guest, and they w- wanted to ask, what's the best way to join or become involved in a cybersecurity community? Um, I still think conferences are the best way to do it. I'm very, um, I'm quite n- nervous and quite, um, <laughs> this might come as a surprise to some people, I'm sure in some quarters, but I'm quite shy. I find it really difficult to sort of talk to people and kind of make connections. But I find it a conference you know, if you go to somebody's talk and you enjoy it, you've got an excuse to go up afterwards to them and sort of say, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed your talk, you know, and chat to them. And, you know, if you sit next to somebody in, in the audience, you can you can kind of chat to them. And it's, it's just a good way of, of, of meeting people. It's also a good way of seeing which companies are big because <laughs> the companies that have the biggest yeah. booths tend to have the most money. So it's a good way of sort of just immediately, you know, top slicing the, uh, the the bigger types of people. And it also gives you a bit of buzz about what's happening in the industry. And also the parties afterwards are usually usually pretty good and pretty boozy. So I, I, I'm a big proponent of conferences and physical conferences. Thankfully, post-COVID, they're starting to come back and, and long may that continue. Absolutely. And it's definitely the Corridor Conference, maybe not even the talk tracks. It's the people you bump into and chat to in the queues and meet yeah. at the potentially boozy after parties as well that are often yeah. the most interesting conversations you have. And then finally, we, you know, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciated it. You've given us some great insights there, and I hope people go out and look at the book and the podcast because they are definitely really interesting to follow. But how can people follow you or get in touch if they want to? Best way is probably on Twitter. So my handle is Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, white like the colour, and then the number's 247 because I'm Jeff White 24-7. <laughs> That's, that'll have more contact details and phone number and email and everything on there. That's the good way to start. That's great. Well, thank you for joining us today on the adventures of Alice and Bob and sharing your insights. Uh, Thanks to the rest of the crew, Jesse, our producer, and Sarah, who makes this project happen. And we'll see you again on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.